ask you to open your Bibles if you would. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. As we, as we kind of come into this time leading up to Easter, my conviction over the past few weeks has been that in my own life it's very easy, and this is what happens with pastors, is we start preparing, right? We start preparing for Easter, and, and here's what happens in a lot of our lives as we're preparing. We've got to get the church ready. We've got to get the service ready. We've got to get the activities ready. We've got to get the eggs ready. We've got to get the whatever it may be, right? We've got to get all the plans in place. And here's what often gets left out. Jesus. It's very easy in the midst of the activity of a season like this for Jesus to be left out. Now, now it's really interesting. Also, I find it interesting that we as the kind of Protestant, conservative, evangelical church in America, don't make a very big deal about Easter, right? We, we, we make a big deal on one day, but it's not like Christmas, right? Christmas is that thing where, like, now the music starts before Thanksgiving, right? Now, as soon as, I mean, you can literally walk into Walmart and see Halloween stuff and Christmas stuff side by side. Right. And this is so we're ready for Christmas, ready to celebrate Christmas and we get ready and we gear up to celebrate Christmas. And it's fantastic, maybe because the gifts are better. I don't know. But the gift of the resurrection is what we're celebrating, because I want you to understand we're not just celebrating that Jesus died and rose again. We're celebrating what Paul celebrated, which is that he's the first fruits of the dead so that the rest of us who are in Christ Jesus also rise. That's what we're celebrating at Easter. And that's worth more than a day. Amen. All right. Three of you think that's worth more than a day. Okay, that's worth more than a day. Amen. All right. Good. Now I'm going to need some talk back now. Okay. I'm I'm fresh. I'm back from sabbatical. I need a little bit of help here. Okay. I want to make sure you understand what we're talking about here is the very life of the Christian. We have no life outside of Jesus. We have no hope outside of Jesus. You have no purpose outside of Jesus. There's no reason to worship but for Jesus. The Apostle Paul would say, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, just go have your meals, have your parties, die, because that's all there is. So literally, the fact that you got to walk into a church, the fact that you woke up this morning, the fact that there's a reason for existence is because Jesus rose from the dead. And yet, it's really easy just kind of brush it aside as the day. And your argument might be, well, isn't that why we celebrate every Sunday? We're celebrating the resurrection every Sunday. Yes, we are. We are celebrating the resurrection every Sunday. That's why we gather on Sundays. I ask you, when you walked in this door, were you thinking, I'm celebrating the resurrection of Jesus today? It's a fair question, right? Kind of ends that argument, doesn't it? Well, we gather every Sunday to celebrate... Did you come in ready to celebrate the resurrection today? It's not Easter. We don't do that. It's not Easter. Kind of like we don't celebrate the birth of Jesus if it's not Christmas, right? It's kind of silly, isn't it? If Jesus is the just and the justifier, the author and the perfecter of our faith, if Jesus is the whole reason, and we love to say Jesus is the reason for the season around Christmas, we forget that Jesus is the reason for every season. In fact, he made the seasons. There are no seasons without Jesus. And I want to just encourage you to not miss Jesus. 
It's fascinating to me as you read through the Bible, Jesus being there in flesh and bone as he walked around, people didn't see it. They kept missing him. The most religious of all people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, they missed him. Right? Even those who followed him after he died missed it. Think about the road to Emmaus, which we'll look at on Easter Sunday. Two guys, followers of Jesus, walking on the road to Emmaus going, I thought he was the one. He must not be. He died. Even though multiple times he told them, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. Right? They had read the scriptures and never seen the truth of who he was. He even tells the Pharisees, you keep studying the scriptures and you, you, you don't see me. If you really loved Abraham, as you say, if you're really children of Abraham and you loved God, you would love me. But they didn't. I don't want us to fall into that trap. I find a coldness sometimes in my own heart where the stuff of Jesus overtakes Jesus in importance. The good stuff of Jesus, right? The security, the peace, everlasting life. The blessings of Jesus begin to overtake in importance in my life. Jesus himself. So it's my job as a pastor, as a shepherd, to guard all of us from that. My guess is that if I struggle with things, more people struggle with them. Okay? That's just my guess. My guess is that you, if you struggle with things, sometimes you feel very isolated in that struggle, don't you? Do you ever feel isolated in the struggle that you have? And here's what God has done in knitting us together in Christ Jesus. We have a Savior who is tempted as we were. So you're never isolated. Right? We have a Jesus, a Savior, a King who is with us always. So you're never isolated. And then he knit us together in him as a body of believers with a whole bunch of people who are having the same problems you are. <laughs> so that you're never alone and you're never isolated. So today I want you to find hope. And we're going to, I'm not going to use a lot of illustrations from life and that sort of thing because this passage is actually just one big illustration. And it's a big illustration of how we need to listen to what Jesus tells us. It's an illustration of how people can enter the kingdom of heaven, how people can find eternal life. If you were to ask the normal person in America right now, how do you get to heaven? What do you think their answer would be? Their answer would probably be, be a good person, right? Try really hard and be a good person. Just be better than Hitler, right? Be a good person, whatever good means. But in, in essence, what we really believe is in order to get to heaven in America, all you got to do is die. Have you ever been to a funeral where they've been like, no, that guy's not in heaven. Ever heard the preacher stand up and say that before? No, because it's always what? The first thing you say, well, he's in a better place. Jesus doesn't give that sort of hope to those who have not come to faith in Jesus. That's why we go. That's why we pray. That's why we give. That's why we proclaim how great Jesus is, because we understand that. And so in this passage, in Luke chapter 18, what we see very plainly from the illustration of a helpless, persistent widow, a sinful tax collector, and, an, and a child, a group of children who are unimpressive, unwanted, near to Jesus. Jesus is the only one who wants them near. Everybody else rebukes them, right? 
in that we learn how to enter the kingdom of heaven. And in order to do that, we can't just go through and try to parse everything and figure out some really nice stories. Like when you read the whole, let the little children come to me, and you get to that passage, we're like, yes, children, those are the ones we reach. That's true. That's true. But that's not the point of this passage. We need to listen to what Jesus says. If we're going to understand how to enter the kingdom of heaven, listen to what Jesus tells us. What we're going to learn from these passages is very simple. It's the essence of faith. Because the demand is going to be faith. Jesus told Nicodemus that in order for a person to enter the kingdom of heaven, he must be born again. He then goes on to say that what it looks like to be born again is for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, what? Believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Faith is the key to being born again, to eternal life. And the essence of faith is throwing ourselves on the mercy and the merit of Jesus, on the goodness of Jesus, on how great Jesus is, what he's accomplished. Not on our own position, not on our own righteousness, not in our own accomplishments. We throw ourselves fully on the mercy and the merit of Jesus. So if you would just follow along in your copy of God's word as we look together at verses 1 through 34. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. You know, sometimes when Jesus uses parables, they're hidden from everybody. This one, not so much. He, from the beginning, tells them, right, tells us what it's all about, what the purpose of this parable is. And he's going to say what the parable is all about. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. So what's her need? Her need is justice. She's looking for justice, right? She's persistently going to the judge who isn't just looking for justice. This judge does not fear God or respect man. He's not a respected person, he's a person with, with position, but not a person you can trust. She says, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not coming. And the Lord said, Underline that. Anytime you see that. right? And the Lord said, and I love the way he puts it, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Here, here's a great phrase. I tell you. I tell you. Listen up. Ears need to perk up. He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on earth? This lady had a great need. Her need is justice. Jesus' promise here is that he's better than the judge. Right? If the judge is finally going to get worn down, do you not think your Father in heaven who loves you will be better than that judge? The unjust judge finally gave in. Do you not think that the just judge of the universe will work justice for his people. Right? The promise is for his elect, for his people, he will work justice. When we cry out to him for justice against our adversary, it may not happen in the time frame we want. 
It may not happen immediately when we want it, but we can trust and pray persistently that He will answer. Her need is justice, and Jesus' promise is that He's better than the unjust judge. But He has a demand. When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith? Now, here's the interesting thing. We're nearing the end of Jesus' life here. Has He found faith? (laughs) Isn't that the issue? Everywhere He goes, that He's not finding faith. What he's finding is religious ritual. What he's finding is people just going and doing the same thing over and over again without their hearts engaging. Where he tells the Pharisees and he tells those who are in righteous positions and he tells them very simply, your hearts are far from me. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Jesus demands faith. The type of faith that will pray with perseverance, that will be persistent, that will come to him, not trying to wear him down, but come to him in faith that he's a good judge and that he's a good father. See, I think when we're praying, sometimes we we fall into one of two traps. We either think, well, I prayed it once. That should be good enough, which this passage tells you wrong, right? This passage tells you that the prayer of faith is a persistent prayer, okay? That if you're going to pray in faith, trusting the one you are praying to, you must be persistent. You should be persistent in praying, right? But the other trap that we run into is, if I pray enough times, I'll wear him down. But that's not what God says here either in his word. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, wear me down with your prayers. He's saying, I'm a good judge, I see the injustice that's against my people, and I will work for it. Has he not been doing that? Did he not deliver his people from unjust slavery in Egypt? Has he not delivered his people from the bondage of sin and death? Will he not one day loose us from this world so that we will be in the new heavens and the new earth with him? And so he says, pray persistently and pray in faith. Jesus has a demand, and it's faith to pray with perseverance. And here's the good news. This is where I want you to skip down for just a second, because this is going to be kind of the key to everything else that we do. Okay? It's in verses 31 through 34. For just a moment, skip down to 31 through 34, so you can see how this all fits together. So Jesus takes the twelve aside after doing some teaching, all of these parables, and he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. What was written? He will suffer, he will die, he will rise. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. He tells them again, this is the third time in the book of Luke where he tells them of his death and resurrection. And what does he say? He says, everything that has been said in the prophets about the Son of Man is about to take place when we get to Jerusalem. What was said? He will bear our sorrows. (laughs) By his stripes we will be healed. He will deliver his people. From bondage. He will work justice for the oppressed. 
What was he doing? His provision was himself. He was providing himself as the anchor of her faith, as the anchor of our faith. Because he's the one who would suffer injustice in our place. So, so here's, the, here's the lesson, very simply. You can flip over to the back of your page if you want to write this down, okay? But it's right there. Jesus, the just judge, demands faith in the one who has suffered injustice to grant true justice to the oppressed. If you want true justice in your life, you've got to have faith in the one who suffered injustice once for all. That's what Jesus is providing. That's what Jesus is demanding. Jesus is saying, you want justice, trust the just judge. The one who, as the just judge, took your place and suffered injustice for you. So that you might be set free. Jesus suffered injustice so that those suffering injustice may pray and never give up. To have faith that he will hear and he will answer. It's very easy in our prayer life to miss Jesus, isn't it? To only focus on what we don't have or what we want or what we wish was happening. And miss the promises that Jesus has promised to bless us, to give us a hope, to give us a life, to give us a future. That we have in him an anchor for our souls. That even the fact that you can pray is because of Jesus. You get access through the, to the throne room of God because of Jesus. <laughs> That this is the reality of the prayer life of the believer. To trust the just judge. When we're in the middle of oppression and injustice. To trust the just judge who has suffered in our place. I want you to look at the next, the next parable. The next thing he talks about. Luke 18 verses 9 through 14. The Pharisee and the tax collector. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. That they were righteous. Now remember, this is who he's talking to. He's talking to the people who trust in their own righteousness. Okay? They're not faith people. They're trusting in their own righteousness. And treated others with contempt. Their own self-righteousness makes them look down on other people. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like the other man. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. All right, let me make sure you understand this. He stood by himself and he prayed thus. And if you look through what Jesus teaches, when he teaches us how to pray, this is what he says. Don't pray like the Pharisees. Okay, first lesson, don't pray like this. The second thing he says, don't pray like the Pharisees who stand and pray out loud so that others would hear them and marvel at their prayers. He doesn't say don't pray out loud. He says don't pray in such a way that you're proud. There shouldn't be pride in your prayer. And this guy is breaking every rule, isn't he? I mean, that's what he's doing. He's just up there praying. So he's probably praying out loud and saying, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. The arrogance, right? Don't forget that not just what happens out loud, but what happens in our heart is what Jesus is always after. And self-righteousness may not be to that degree, but if Jesus is saying this is self-righteousness of this guy, everything under that comes into play. So whatever our self-righteousness looks like, Jesus is going after right here. Whatever we're trusting other than Jesus, he is putting to task here. 
I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, will not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. How does the helpless widow enter the kingdom, go home justified? By trusting in the one who suffered injustice in her place. How does the tax collector, the sinful tax collector, go home justified? By humbling himself to repentance so that Jesus could exalt him. So that Jesus, through his humiliation, would exalt him. Here's what it looks like. There's a contrast here that you can see at play. There's the self-righteousness versus the unrighteousness, right? This isn't a self-righteous person and a truly righteous person standing there. That's not what Jesus puts up against each other. He puts the self-righteous person and the unrighteous person. Tax collectors were traitors. They had sold out to the Roman government. They were stealing from people. That's what tax collectors did. And here's the tax collector, the sinner, and then the Pharisee, the righteous guy, the self-righteous guy, and Jesus pits them against each other in this illustration. And what do we see from the sinful tax collector? We see his position. What's his position? He stands far off. He doesn't feel like he can come into the presence of God. Right? He stands off. A place of humility. And he beats his breast. He doesn't know what else to do. So he's just beating his chest in agony and repentance. He doesn't know what to do. He's trying to take care of the problem himself. He's pummeling his body into submission before a holy God. And he doesn't know what else to do. So what does he do? He cries out for mercy. His plea is, have mercy. I'm a sinner. And what does Jesus declare? Not that the guy who seemed to have it all together, who fasted all the time, who did all the religious stuff, and none of that, Jesus says, is bad. He tells people to fast. He tells people to pray. Right? Do all of that stuff. But he says, none of that will justify you. Only the mercy of Jesus will justify you. Jesus' declaration is, this man, this humbled man, He probably wasn't humble within his own character. It's that before a holy God, he was brought into humiliation. He was brought down to humility. And that humility led him to repent. And so what does Jesus say? This is what he says. I tell you. See that phrase again? Right? It's the same phrase he used when it came to the woman. Verse 8. I tell you. Now, he tells us again. Verse 14. I tell you. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself, everyone who lifts himself up, will be humbled. And don't, don't miss this. The tax collector had already done that, right? The tax collector had already exalted himself. He had taken the traitor's job. He had taken the job where he was stealing from people. He was pushing himself up and God humbled him. The Pharisee had never been humbled So the question for us today, have you been humbled by your sin before a holy God? Perfect and righteous, glorious and mighty. Because Jesus then says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. 
but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 puts it this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So here's Jesus who humbles himself and now is being exalted so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see what's happened here? Jesus has humbled himself and the Father has exalted him. And we who are in Christ Jesus are then humbled to be exalted. If we're going to be people who are in Christ, who see Jesus in the midst of our Christian lives, it can't be, I fast, I pray, I go to church, I serve, I teach, I'm a deacon, I give, I do all. It can't be that. It can't be the check you write. Please keep writing them. It can't be, right, it can't be any of that. Do you understand what I'm saying? Instead, it has to be the humble reality that I am a sinner who has been saved and been called now a child of God. Okay, Where our identity shifts from sinner to saved. All because of what Jesus has done. Is there nothing more humbling than looking at the cross? And knowing that your sin had something to do with that? How humbled do we need to get? <laughs> right? How humbled can you get before the cross? How proud could you be before the cross? My sin did that. How ridiculous does that sound, right? Now be humbled by the cross. Be humbled by the fact that our Savior is, as he said, going to suffer. He's going to be spit upon. He's going to be killed. And he's going to rise. He's going to be humbled to be exalted. That's the provision of Jesus. What I find fascinating and what I don't want you to miss is right now, Jesus has told the story of the helpless widow and said, he has suffered injustice so that we might know we have deliverance. Right? And now he says, he has been humbled so that we might know how to be exalted. Right now, the whole Christian life is coming under what Jesus has done. Finally, he comes to the unimpressive child. Look at verses 15 through 17. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him, but Jesus, or rebuked them, and Jesus called to them saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them for such things or to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What is he not saying here? He's not saying be childlike for your whole life. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying remain a baby. Like simple faith. Simple faith will save you, but God has never designed the Christian to stay just in simplicity, but to begin to understand, to take on meat, to grow. 
My fear is that many of us have not moved past simplicity to begin to understand the deeper things of God because we just want to keep hanging out as children. And we use this verse oftentimes to justify that. I know I have in my life, but that's not what he's saying at all. Here's what you need to know about children in Jesus' day. Here's tax collectors. (laughs) One tiny step above tax collectors are children in worth in the culture of Jesus' day. And Jesus says, they've got nothing impressive about them. Jesus is not saying, be like a child, they're innocent. No. Anybody a parent? How innocent are your children from birth? Just tell me. How, how Did you teach them to sin? Did you teach them to disobey? Did you teach them to whine and complain? Or did they just have that naturally within them? Right? I've said it before. They come out going, me, me, selfish to the core. It's the reality of the sin nature. Jesus isn't saying, be like a child, they're innocent, and you'll get the kingdom of heaven. It's not at all what he's saying. Instead, what he's saying is that they, being unimpressive without any merit of their own, without any accomplishments, can enter the kingdom by faith. Be like them. Not putting your accomplishments and your merit and your ability and all that you've done and saying, that's how I get in. But be like the child. See, their position was they were culturally insignificant. And they were sinners. Their accomplishments were, well, none. They were children. Infants even. But they were accepted by the mercy of Jesus. In the same way we, sinners with no significance in our accomplishments, need the mercy of Jesus. So Jesus says, use them as an example. Be like them. Be insignificant. Don't prop your accomplishments up. Be like them. And so we go back to Philippians chapter 2. Jesus made a provision. What did he do? He humbled himself and took on the form of a... Servant. Insignificant. We just celebrated the Lord's Supper. What did Jesus do at the Lord's Supper? He took the form of a servant. He got on his hands and knees and washed the dirt and muck off of the feet of his disciples. Nobody else at that table took the initiative to do that. Jesus took the form of a servant. When he started doing it, they started feeling guilty, right? Oh, we should be the ones doing that. But nobody actually took the initiative. No one had it in them, in their own heart. No, what we learn is that Jesus, who is the Son of God, He took on flesh as a baby to stand in the place of all who would be born again in faith. It's not our own accomplishments that Jesus perfectly kept God's law in righteousness so that His merit, His accomplishments are our hope, not our own accomplishments. Be like a child who trusts the character of Jesus who comes to Jesus, who doesn't come saying, here's what I've done. It comes based on who Jesus is. So we run through this real quick and we'll, we'll finish. Jesus, the just judge, demands faith in the one who has suffered injustice in order to grant true justice to the oppressed. He suffered 
He suffered injustice so that those suffering injustice may pray and never give up. That we would have faith that he hears and will answer. Jesus is the sinless one. He humbled himself to death and was exalted so that the one humbled to repentance from his sin may be exalted by God. Have you been humbled by a holy God to repent, to turn from your sin? Jesus suffered as a sacrifice once for all. There's no more sacrifice necessary in order to attain salvation and forgiveness of sins. He did it so that we who approach him can approach on his merit, on his accomplishments, on his perfection, on his mercy, on his grace, and not on our own righteousness in order to find acceptance by God. And Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh as a baby to stand in the place of all who would be born again in faith. He lived a life of perfect submission to the Father, keeping the law perfectly, something we could never do so that he could stand in our place. So that now our justice is found in him, as Romans 3 tells us, that he's the just, right? He is just, and he's the justifier. We don't find a place in there in our own accord, do we? We trust in him. I close with this. You know this story well, and I don't want you to miss it because it's right here. Just read this with me. Follow along if you would. Verse 18. This is the rich young ruler. We skip the rest of these a lot of times to get to the rich young ruler, right? Because it preaches in today's society. Okay? This is what he says. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Jesus says, here are things, have you done these? And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. That's not enough, Jesus says. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I've given you example after example, right? The parable of the persistent widow. She needed justice. She didn't seek it on her own. She had to go to the one who suffered injustice in order to get justice, right? Her position couldn't accomplish it. I have the tax collector who has nothing to offer except have mercy on me. Nothing of worth. And the Pharisee who kept saying, here's all the things I've done, but he didn't go home justified. And the child who has no accomplishments, no values, no valuables to throw at Jesus' feet and yet accepted into the kingdom. And here's this man it is difficult. Why? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our houses and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in, the, in this time and in the age to come eternal life. How will you enter the kingdom? Don't be like the rich young ruler. See, 
and the persistent widow faith in a just judge who has suffered in her place. For the children, no accomplishments. For the tax collector, mercy. Have mercy on me. But for the rich young ruler, he missed Jesus. He missed Jesus. And in just a few days, Jesus would begin his path to Jerusalem and he would suffer. See, we can miss Jesus because of our own self-righteousness and accomplishments. Hey, keep the law. I've done that since I was born. Since I was a kid. Right? That's what he says. And he misses Jesus, who is the only one who has kept the law <laughs> since his birth. We can miss Jesus because of our lower loves, our lesser loves and our idols. So one thing you have to do, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor. But he idolized his wealth. He idolized what he had. We can miss Jesus because we get our vision clouded by what's around us, right? By what we grasp and hold on to, to lower loves. We can miss Jesus because of our own strength and self-reliance or power. Here's a guy who comes and says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And God, Jesus says, what's impossible with man is possible with God. What's he saying? You can't do anything. That's what he's saying. Peter goes, then who can inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus goes, you can't do it. I have to do it. I have to accomplish this for you. I have to be the one you trust. I have to be the one you believe in. I have to be the one who is your life. In your salvation. And then there in the closing passage, he goes again and he tells them, we're going to Jerusalem so I can suffer, so I can die and rise again. And the passage closes with, they understood none of these things. (laughs) This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what he said. We can miss Jesus because of our blindness to the purpose of Jesus. Let Let me make sure you understand this. Jesus' purpose is not to give you a really great life. It's to give you new life. And that may not look anything like what you want it to. (laughs) Jesus' purpose is not to fulfill all of your wildest dreams. His purpose is He's building a kingdom that will far surpass any of your wildest dreams. Jesus' purpose is to come and to seek and to save that which was lost. And if you're sitting here today and you go, never been lost, then he didn't come for you. You're blind to his purpose. My prayer for you, and I would ask you this, would you pray this? God, show me your power instead of having me trust my own. If you're here today and you're a believer, I ask you, do you have people in your life who have not trusted Jesus and yet gave up on? You just kind of gave up on praying for them anymore. You gave up on sharing with them anymore. You gave up on inviting them anymore. You said, it's not going to happen. It's not possible. How can someone enter the kingdom of heaven? Pray persistently. Pray persistently. Knowing that we have a just judge who will set things right. Come to him not based on your accomplishments or based on what you've done. 
Come to him for mercy. And come to him for mercy in your own life and on behalf of others. Because how can one be saved? Only by God's power. So if you're a believer today, I ask you, would you renew your commitment today to trusting that God is powerful to save? (laughs) And if that's true, that you would join him on that endeavor of seeing the people in Powhatan and beyond come to Christ. That you would not give up on God's power. And as we get ready to sing, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ today and you've heard all of this, you said, I've been trusting my own power. I've been trusting what I have, my accomplishments. Anytime people ask me about following Jesus, I start talking about myself and what I've done. It's a good clue. Okay? If that's true of you, if that's the struggle you're in, today is a day where you can trust in the power of Jesus to save you, to change you, to transform you. I'd love to talk to you about that. Pastor Roger will be in the back. I'll be up here at the front. We'd love to talk to you about it as, that as we sing or after the service of what it is to be a follower of Jesus, to trust fully in Jesus Christ. Would you stand with